coffee. What is it about coffee that makes it so damn good? Maybe it's the smell of coffee brewing that brings back that new to recovery feeling that we got when we first stepped into a meeting. Maybe it's the idea of holding on to one of the only things that still works for kickstarting our day. Maybe it's the way it brings us together, another one of the many things we have in common. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all coffee proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is the higher powder. It's dark, smoky, and rich, and gives me just enough kick to really get into my day. Right now, you can go to brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Clean your bean with Brainwash. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. And I'm Charlie. This is Charlie. Yes. Boom. Welcome, Charlie. You guys might recognize Charlie from last episode. Because uh, Charlie was gracious enough to give us his story, and we wanted more. Hey, Welcome. We couldn't help but yeah. want more. Yeah. So, what's up? <laughs> Charlie, you touched on a few things in your story that we just, we we really, we wanted we wanted to expand on. So, I'm glad that you were able to come back, and we really yeah. appreciate it. Charlie is, uh, is uh, work, he currently works at Brighton Recovery as his own private practice as well. Like, what? Yeah. What's your official like certification? Yes. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, um, and I, I I work with all types of individuals who just are struggling with mental health issues. Yeah. Great. Can well, you help Cameron? Yeah, I was going to say that includes me. People that are hopeless. <laughs> Cameron's hopeless. And you're going to want to stick around. We got a fucking crazy, amazing, wonderful war story. We always do, and 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 this one hits home hard. You know, it's yeah. it's another perfect example uh storm uh, who is also part of uh any lakes retreat yep so mm. you're gonna want to stick around for that because we got our topic from that and you know and i think it runs well with your story charlie you know we're gonna be talking about that spiritual awakening yeah that i don't know anything about yeah none of us yeah. have had any sort of spiritual so, awakening so well, I, you know, it's always important for me to mention, you know, you don't necessarily have to believe in a spirit in order to have a spiritual experience, you know, and you can be as staunch as you want about the spiritual world. But um, there's definitely an energy that flows in the recovery community that is hard for me to define as anything other than spirit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't know what else to call it. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree completely. And that's the thing. It's like what. We, you know, we work a 12-step program, so we have a pretty well-defined, like, what a spiritual experience is or what a spiritual awakening is. Um, but I think that, you know, we can get lost oftentimes thinking that it needs to be this burning bush moment. And we talked about that a little bit before we got started. But, 
but oftentimes that's not the case. Like that's not my experience anyways is, you know, I didn't really have this burning bush moment, but I was able to, at some point look back at what, what my life was and what it is now and see that I have had some sort of spiritual awakening because I'm much more aware of other people's needs and I'm not um, constantly thinking of self and I'm now, you know, in a situation where I'm no longer drinking and that in and of itself is a spiritual awakening, you know? And is that your, has that been your experience, Charlie? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking about this as you were just saying that my dad, my dad's been sober for, I don't know, fucking 30 years, some shit like that. But, uh, we, uh, I'll never forget, man, when I, the, the first time I ever tried to get sober and it didn't stick, I was, I was sitting in this treatment center and, um, my dad came to see me and the, the treatment center was taking us up to this Pentecostal church. I don't know if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church, but it's a little bit nutty. No offense to the Pentecostals in the house. But, um, but there's a lot of like, you know, uh, talking and, and tongues and shit like that. And I, I remember telling my dad, I was like, dude, I want to talk in tongues. I want to see this shit that they see, you know, I want it to be like that drastic. Right. And my dad was like, dude, it, just slow down, you know, take your time. It's going to be gradual. You're going to get there when you get there yeah. and just embrace it. And, um, and I did, he was right. That's right about a lot of shit. Uh, well, and that's a good point. Like I know, you know, Willie and his spiritual journey, and I think I've had moments like this too, where we've literally had like, okay, God, I need you to make it very, very clear, right? right? Clear enough that even a blind man could see it. Yeah, right. And I'm quoting Willie's story yes. directly here. Yeah. But like that's 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 not, in in my experience, that's generally not how it works. Yeah. You know? Not to say that there aren't people with those experiences. And I think that I've been somewhat envious of, of those people. Oftentimes I'm like, damn it, that's what I want. You had, you had what? You had the whole room light up. Like, like, that's what I want. Right. You know, but that like I can want in one hand and, and, and wish in the other, like it doesn't work like that, you know, not in my experience. So, so Willie, like what's been your journey with it? Because oh, I know you've man. had up you've had and some, down. Yeah. You know, well, I came in, I came into recovery with, you know, this last time with the God that I was raised with. And I thought that, that spirituality had to absolutely coincide with that because of the teachings that I had as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, that there, there really was no spirituality without the presence of God. And, and because of that, you know, and and for me, it was one specific God. It was the Judeo-Christian God that I was raised with Mm -hmm. and, and the fact of the matter was I didn't believe in that God, even, even, even though I tried and I wanted to, you know, um, being raised with that, you know, not believing in it made me feel like there was something wrong with me and that I just had to try harder. <laughs> like I have to try harder to believe in this God, you know? And, and so coming to terms where that particular God was not mine and it didn't have to be that it was my parents' God and it worked for him. It was, it's been a, it's been a really interesting journey because it went from, you know, acting like I believed in it and wanting to believe in it and saying that I believed in it to, to doing a complete 180 to going, you know, I don't fucking believe in any of like, yeah. I'm completely an atheist. Like there is no God that there's nothing that you can do, you know, and, and that left me empty also, you know, for, I think for you, it was important to just wipe the slate clean. Absolutely. Yeah. I had to, I had to, Probably, I had to, right completely wipe it all off because it wasn't working. And this was in sobriety, you know, I'd had spiritual experiences like 
you know, the, the, the white light moment of a gun, you know, in my face to the white light moment of me understanding that I, I was trying to believe in something that I didn't, you know, and, and for me, you know, I have to be very clear about my belief structure or else I feel like a phony. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going through, I don't, I don't have the, the luxury of lying about my recovery. Right. You know, one of the, one of the things in the recovery movement that you'll hear from time to time is fake it till you make it. Right. right. You yeah. know, and, and I guess that works to an extent, but, but one of the things about that statement is, is I don't get to fake my sobriety. Mm. You know, I have to be a hundred percent honest. And so when it comes to faking it until you make it, um, I faked it, but I didn't understand that I was faking it. I was trying to come to believe in a power that wasn't my own. And it was making me sicker and sicker and sicker because mm. it, it just wasn't resonating with me. It wasn't working for me. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I feel so strongly about the topic. I, uh, I work at a place called Bright Recovery Center. And um, when I first started working at, at the, the place that I work at, which is the monastery, and it's built in this old monastery, super cool building, um, the, the guy who brought me in, the clinical director, he was like, look, man, I want you to create a group, and I want you to uh, create a group about, like, anything you're passionate about. You pick you do it. This is your time. And it's, it's yours, what, whatever you want to do. And I was like, dude, I want to do it on spirituality, meditation. And, and I want to construct this group around, um, people just coming to believe and find what their own thing is yeah. and not being pigeonholed into this other thing. Right. Did I still run that group every, every Tuesday from one to two? And it's one of my, it's my baby group. Right. And so essentially I get people in and, and I say, listen, here's the rules of the group. You, uh, you, uh, first for starters, I'm going to introduce you. Um, what's your definition? What's your individualized yes. definition of spirituality, religion? Um, and, and then, so the rules of the group is this, like, we're here to understand what other people are thinking. We are here never to conform. We never want to conform someone else to our particular, particular ideologies. If we're, if we're starting to go in that direction, then we're fucking up big time at what this group was designed to do. The group is designed for you to be comfortable sharing what you are, who you are, what you believe, what you feel, and then also attempting to understand what other people believe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think in early recovery, one of the number one things, this is the main reason why I feel so, so passionate about this is because, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who, um, who uh, come in, they do step work, and I always say, you know, uh, you, know you talk about people come into 12-step uh, programs and they're like, this is a spiritual program, not a religious program, Right. And so people are like, okay, good, because I don't want to do that fucking God thing, right? I, I'm not doing that right, God thing. So yeah. you say, all right, well, let's do step one. All right, you're powerless. You're powerless. You, obviously, obviously, my shit's fucked mm -hmm. up. I'm powerless. Easy. All right, step two, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could resource standing. Well, fucking, I thought you said I didn't have to do the, uh, the God <laughs> thing. You got me, right? And yeah. Then, and so I, I deal with this, and like uh, one of the number one things is that trauma that's associated with religion. Whenever, yes. whenever you're in active trauma syndrome, or or just growing up, like, yeah. like you guys in in LDS country up here, y'all got your own special brand of it. But I'm from the South, like Southern Baptist, like they got some fucked up shit going on down there too. Another thing is, I never want to offend anybody um, who is deeply religious because I, I want you to know, like I, I work with a lot of people who get a lot of faith and and security out of mm. it, right? And I always tell people, like, I'm an equal opportunity religious fuck with her. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock on every single religion out there equally. And I love them all, but I also am able to, in my own way, um, identify some of the inadequacies that I see. It doesn't mean they have to be inadequacies for you, but it's just shit that I see. So yeah. I never want to offend anybody. But, um, but anyway, my point is this. It's like, 
you know, the trauma that I dealt with, with, with people while with Bon Steve's working steps and like having people get to a step two and much less through a step two. Yeah. Right. And then, um, it's something why I really think in early recovery, this is something that we need to just be comfortable with. We need to be comfortable with saying, listen, dude, this whole Jesus thing, not my thing. I love the mountain. Let me go climb a mountain. Right. That's my God. Right. And, and that's fucking fine. And, and one of the things that I, it drives me crazy about AA is like, you can go into an AA meeting. I want everybody to hear this. You can go into an AA meeting and you can say, dude, my higher power is that fucking mountain up there. And, and just because Billy Bob's higher power is, is Jesus and, and all the, that shit, like you're both welcome. Yeah. You're both equally yeah. welcome. And I think people have that disconnect and feel like, hey, well, I'm not, I'm not welcome here because I'm not with the Jesus thing. You know right. what I mean? And it's the furthest thing from the truth. Or, yeah. or that I am with the Jesus thing. I'm not welcome. Yeah, well, yeah. Or that. Or yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way. Either side of that coin. You can, yeah. say, you can make an yeah. argument for it. Because for I, sure. that was my experience. I mean, that definitely was, you know, something I, I came into the rooms and I, I probably not to the extent of Willie, but I had some religious trauma. I didn't like hearing about God. I didn't like the word God, you know, and, and, uh, and, and when I would hear that word, like it did something to me that was negative. Mm-hmm. You know, and it took me a long time to get to a point where I did believe in a higher power. And it took me even longer to decide to call that God. Mm-hmm. And I think in my experience, it was simply because God was easier to say. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to say higher power every time. I was like, I'll just I call it God. Like, it's love fine. That shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that and that's my my journey with the spiritual awakening. But I think, you know, to that point, like even the fact that I was open and, and that I think is the the crucial part when it comes to a spiritual awakening. Like I had to get to a point with my disease where the pain was enough that I was even open to the idea of a spiritual awakening, right? That I was even like, okay, like obviously I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. These people are telling me that it's a spiritual experience or that I need a spiritual awakening like, what does that even look like? Okay, I'm open to the idea that that's what I need, you know, and then go from there. And like, when, as long as I'm willing to to be open to the idea that I do need a spiritual experience, that that the solution is spiritual in nature, then then from that idea, like, I can at least look back at that and be like, that's a psychic change in and of itself. More. You know what I mean? And, and on that note, let's talk a little bit about that because Willie, when we were talking before the show, you said, I think a spiritual awakening is second to a psychic change. Sure. So sure. in your opinion, what's the difference between a psychic change and a spiritual awakening? I, I, I think if, if I had to define a difference between it, I think a psychic change is the way that I think about something and a spiritual experience is a way that I feel about it. Hmm. Ooh, know, I like I, that. I, you know, because... Uh, I wasn't open to even feeling anything spiritual until I was open to the fact that I could think about it differently. Right. And I, I needed, fuck, I, I went to meetings every day for a really long time to the point, you know, I needed other people talking about this stuff long enough for me to start clicking with the fact that like, I don't believe this stuff, you mm-hmm. know? And so mm-hmm. on, on to your point, you know, one of the things that I do, with with my guys when I first start working with them is we talk about what you believe not 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 based on what you say you believe what do your fucking actions say you believe yeah because everything is everything is so deeply um subconscious for me you know I went through the religious trauma stuff trying to believe in a god that wasn't my own 
and I went to the point where I was really studying that religion, right? Um, I, I basically didn't study any other religions. And, and the more that I studied it, the more that I found that I don't believe it. And the more that it, it, it sat with me that there's something wrong with me because I don't believe it. And so I kind of do the same thing with my guys is, is, you know, they'll come to me and a lot of people will come to me with the God that they were raised with, Mm -hmm. you know, most people have come to me. and, And when we start talking about higher power, you know, it's, it's God, especially in America, you know, I haven't ever had a, a Muslim, uh, a couple Buddhists, you know, an atheist, but most of the time it, it's the American Christian God. And, and, and I go, okay, if you believe it, these are the rules as I understand them. Would you agree? And, and they'll be like, yeah, you know, the 10 commandments, you know, that, um, if you don't behave, you're going to hell. If you do behave, you're going to heaven. You know, there's, there's all these rules that go along with it. And then I ask him, you know, are you following those rules? You know, and most of the time they're like, fuck no. And I'm like, so you think that you're going to go to hell when you die, but you're not going to follow the rules. Like, are you sure you believe in this religion? Like, like, let's look at your actions, not what you say. And let's dive into it because you will never... I, I believe you'll you'll never be fulfilled in a religion that you don't believe in unless you act accordingly to the religion, you know? And so that's where I found myself was was in this place where I wasn't acting accordingly with the rules of it. And so obviously my actions were saying, you don't believe in this, right? right. And so if I don't believe in it, what do I believe? And if I can't answer that, then what do I need to do? And for me, I needed to do some deep inner work. You know, what was I willing to do in that? And it was going outside of that one religion and studying other religions, including Buddhism, you know, uh, you know, uh, Islam, um, Satanism, atheism, you know, all these different aspects, because I wasn't willing to look at any of those things like you're talking about in your group, you know, being open minded to all aspects right. of, of religion to find my own spirituality. You know, and it, it's hard to define the differences between those two, especially in early sobriety, unless you do some work involved with it. Right. So I, I don't know. I guess maybe some people are really natural at it, but I wasn't like I'm, I'm really black and white. Man, let me tell you something. You know what I've found in my life? And, um, dude, everything I know is subject to revision, especially what I know to be true. But I'll tell you something <laughs> that I've found in my Very life well said. is is uh, is this um, is this idea that. We, you know, we're taught at an early age, don't fucking question that shit. Don't question that shit. Right. But the reality, the reality is this, the more we question, the more we question and the more we're able to come up with our own truth, the stronger our faith actually is. Mm, And so all that study and all that shit you're talking about, right. That solidifies who you are and where you are stronger than much, much, much stronger than if anybody says, dude, you got to believe this shit. If you don't believe this, you're going to fucking die and go to hell. And that's going to not be cool. Didn't work for me. Right. It's fucking killing me. Right. (laughs) Literally, you know, so with, with, with all that, you know, um, and then doing the steps with a sponsor, like I had a major spirit, a spiritual experience in step three, because step two just kind of happened to me. Mm -hmm. But when it came to turning my will and my life over the care of God, as I understood him, you know, I had a, I had a actual physical reaction when, when we did step three Mm. and what came out of that when I prayed with another guy and, and, you know, there's a, a monastery and you've heard this story, but 
there's a monastery in Ogden Canyon that alcoholics used to go to all the time. There's it's the, uh, the Trinity, our lady Abbey, uh, hmm. whatever up there. And it's closed now, but alcoholics have been going up there for a really long time. And we went up there to do my step three. And, uh, you know, when he offered me to get down and pray with him, I did that, but it was the most fucking uncomfortable prayer I ever had in my life. There's that prayer. You know? Yeah. And, and basically, I mean, he said a pretty standard prayer, but I, I got down and I, and I recited the third step prayer as best I could. And like, I got fucking hot and I was sweating and my mind was racing and I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to run away and I was uncomfortable and I didn't want to do it, you know? And, and I went through with it. I got up and I went and turned myself in for some warrants in Wyoming where I wrote my four step while I was in jail. I had to do a little bit of time, but, um, after doing all that and working through those steps, what I found is that, you know, in that moment I was having a reaction to extreme embarrassment. And that was the emotion that I was having during that. And, and from that moment forward, I've never been embarrassed since because I finally got through it without relapsing, mm. you know, and I needed that in order to move forward with, uh, you know, my, my ninth step immense, mm. you know, I needed, because I, there's no way I could have fucking faced people in the eye and made amends being embarrassed. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way I could have done it. And so one thing stacked on top of another and all these things were spiritual in nature because it was me feeling the energy of another person. Right. And, and going through that and stepping out of selfishness, which is, in, in my opinion, more of a physical aspect of life, you know, I act out selfishly because there's something I need physically, you know, or I think I need physically. So I need to take something from out there, put it in here to change the way that I feel physically. But when I get into the spiritual world, it's more emotional and, and I can feel that emotionally with other people you know, working one-on-one -on -one with another alcoholic, that becomes emotional. I can feel it inside of me and I don't need anything from the outside world because all the work's being done on the inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just the fact that you were willing to, to go there with another person, you know, it sounds to me like a, a, a psychic change, mm. you know, like the, the things that I was asked to do in recovery and, and, and the willingness that I, that I exhibited by going through those motions you know, was, was indeed a spiritual awakening in and of itself because I was no longer just consumed by, you know, the, the drugs and alcohol. I was willing to, to be vulnerable and to be open with another person and share this stuff that I hated talking about, <laughs> like, let alone, you know, like in, in that sort of detail, um, and, you know, opening up myself to another person and to God, you know, or a higher power of my own choosing. But, you know, it, it kind of makes me, I, I think that it's necessary that we do all these things, obviously. And, and in a 12 step program, like we do these things so that we can get and stay sober. And, and one of the things that we heard Storm say in her, in her story, which was just beautiful. She said, it's an education in the art of living. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's what recovery is and that's what, you know, her spiritual awakening was and that, you know, that's been my experience as well. But, you know, on that note, I'd really like to hear from you, Charlie, one of the things you talked about in your war story was the four pillars mm -hmm. that guarantee, um, sobriety, right. Yeah. Long-term yeah. sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, 
I these are affectionately called the four pillars of Charlie. Four pillars of Charlie. Anybody who knows me, uh, but I guess for insurance purposes, we call them the four pillars of early recovery. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I, and I, I want to be I want to be real clear about a couple of things. Um, did I've been around I've been uh, around addiction or I've been around recovery my whole life. Your whole life. My whole life yeah. since birth. Um, my, uh, you know, if you're from Jackson, Mississippi, then your last name is Osborne, then you're either, you know, dead from addiction and active addiction or in recovery in some capacity uh, for the most part. And um, and uh, just I've just been around it forever. And so my dad sobered up when I was about 12 years old, and I've seen people in and out. And my uncle has been extremely active in, in recovery. So the, the recovery community and the addiction community in Jackson, Mississippi, to me, has just consistently been linked my whole life. And, um, and I've watched people come in and out of the rooms, and I've seen people succeed. I've seen people fail. And, um, and I can tell you that I, I, I really, truly believe that people, people are not successful uh, with recovery because um, they ultimately they choose to get high. Like I've seen some of the most amazing, uh, uh, like horrific uh, uh, heart-tugging events in my life, and I've seen people stay sober through them. Yeah, you sure. know what I mean? And it, and it leads me to believe that that ultimately we can stay sober through anything. My dad will tell, my dad says, this is a, the, the, my dad says this to me all the time. He says, there's nothing in life that drinking's going to make better. Yep. He says that shit to me all the fucking time. There's nothing in life that drinking's going to make better. And, and I've seen it countless times. People go through all this stuff. So it leads me to believe that whenever we, you know, we, 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 we relapse and we say, well, I relapse because, you know, my boss is an asshole. I relapse because I'm going through a divorce. I relapse because my dog died. I relapse, whatever the fuck it is, right? Ultimately, now nah, we relapse because we want to get drunk. Yeah, we relapse because we want to get high. You know what I mean? Let's not let's stop. You know, uh, dishonoring the memory of whatever that shit is over mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. by by holding that shit accountable for me wanting to get high and me acting out on it, right? And so, so that being said, I want you to know that I've kind of summed up. Um, I've kind of summed up like everything that I've seen through the experience of my life and then my own recovery. Uh, and I've summed it up into, into four things that we can do consistently. And it's, it's almost a guarantee that we can stay sober. Uh, now understand this, the biggest word that you're going to hear in this whole thing is consistently, right? We can't, we can't just half-ass do this shit. We have to wake up every single day. We have to know that what I do for my recovery today isn't going to keep me sober tomorrow. And, um, and so it's this whole consistently implementing these four pillars that's actually going to keep you sober. And, when I say sober, I mean by all research standards, uh, uh, you can go long-term recovery. Whenever you hear me say that, it just means quite simply five years. So um, I'm going to say my four pillars to achieve long-term recovery, and I can damn near guarantee it. As a matter of fact, let me tell you this too, something else. If you've ever been in one of my groups and you hear the four pillars, then I get up there and I say, hey, listen, let me tell you, the, anybody in here can have my phone number. Dude. As a matter of fact, every community that I've ever lived in, um, people call me constantly and they're like, Hey, Charlie, you know, so-and-so gave me your number. I need to go to a meeting. Um, what can I do? And I'm like, all right, cool. And I, I never mind when people call me about recovery. It's, it's like so many people randomly call me. And so I, I give my number to everybody. And so you, you're, anybody here, you, you can find it. I can guarantee you, you can call me anytime. I promise you, you're not going to be bothering me. But, um, but uh, I want anybody who is, and I, I put this invitation, I've been putting this invitation out for about two and a half years. Anybody out there who, um, who consistently daily engages in these four pillars and does not and does not achieve long-term recovery or relapses i want you to call me i just want you to be like you're a fucking liar and then hang up on me dude (laughs) or you can tell me your name and you tell me just tell me i'm a piece of shit and i'm fucking a liar all right dude i've been telling people that shit for, for two and a half years i'm gonna tell you what i get i get hey dude you know you're right dude 
first pillar, just didn't want to do it. You know what I mean? That got me. Uh, pillars two and three, fuck it. That's what got me. You know what I mean? That's what I get when I get those phone calls back. And I can tell you, man, for two and a half years, I can tell you the people that, that follow these four pillars, they're still sober today. And it's a beautiful thing. So, so I'll go right into it. So um, uh, uh, pillar number one, uh, we, we've got to find a community. We've got to find a healthy community. Yep. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm the first one to tell you, AA worked for me. AA saved me, my family. Um, but but I, I, don't, I don't get a residual check every time I send somebody to an AA meeting. I wish I did, but I don't. And so, um, so, but we have to find some type of community. Now, there's, there's multiple communities. We're blessed in, in our community to have SOAR, um, where we, we have refuge recovery. We have, uh, uh, um, we have uh, SMART recovery. We have AA, NACA, HA, all this shit, right? Um, but more importantly, don't discount church, right? Now, I don't go to church, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, like I said before, people find that shit in church. Right. And more power to them if they do, right? Um, but I, uh, so, in, in, in let me be, let me be like a hard ass here. Let me be a, a, a thumper here. Um, I, I want you to know when I hear somebody in early recovery and, and they, they make about 2000 excuses as to why they don't want to go to an AA meeting, why AA meetings don't work, why refuge won't work or why smart recovery won't work. When I hear that shit, I hear, this is me. I hear I'm a fucking relapse. I don't want to do this shit. I don't want to put in the work that's going to keep me sober. That's what I hear. Mm-hmm. They're all fucking excuses. I want to be real clear about something. I don't care what community you belong to. I don't care. AA is cool because you get to meet me. But nonetheless, in Refuge too. but if that's not your thing, go find something else. My point is this. And as blunt as I can be, this is mandatory. This is mandatory. You have got to be part of a community. You got to stop making excuses. You got to figure out what community works for you. You got to be part of it. That's the first pillar: find a community, healthy community, not using drugs, making good, healthy decisions. Second pillar: um, you've got to get a sponsor or a mentor or mm. a preacher or a priest or a bishop or uh, somebody who is a point of accountability for you. I always remember men stick with men, women stick with women. There's a lot of reasons for that. If you're gay, it's a little bit different. But ultimately, your goal is never to be sexually attracted to that person because that level of intimacy you're going to develop with that person um, needs to be that of a point of accountability, not of a sexual, not sexual in nature. You've got to develop this relationship. And, and y'all, I want you to know, like, when I first got clean, um, I got this... Uh, uh, I went. I went to an NA meeting. I got this this big, tall, black dude from the Bronx who was old as fuck. Been sober for thirty three <laughs> years. It was Henry D. And um and uh, he uh dude dude was dude he God dude, I got more information from this guy. And he would always tell me he's like, let me tell you something. Nothing I say is original. Everything I say is fucking regurgitated right. from somewhere. And um and so Henry died. Henry, Henry died clean of cancer. And, um, and then I got this, uh, this little bitty short, uh, Jewish dude from, from, uh, from, uh, Boston, Howie. And then, um, and then I move out here and then I get this really big, tall dude, Rick, who, uh, uh, is from Kansas city. And so, um, and so I've had, I've been blessed in, in my recovery to have three sponsors, all super fucking cool, all super intelligent, 
lot of recovery, a lot of recovery. And, um, and, and my blessing is that, is that I've been able to develop a, a two-sided relationship with all of these people. Like it, being, having a sponsor-sponsee relationship um, so often, you know, we start it and we just take and take and take and take and take because we're in that place where we just need recovery yeah. and we don't know what it is. And so we take and take and take. But then the more we get into it, the more we're able to to be there for the for the sponsors, right? The more like the um the bad days happen for the sponsor and we go out to lunch and give each other hugs and fucking cry on each other's shoulders and shit like that. And I mean, though the, these relationships are some of the most beautiful, intimate relationships I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. And um and listen, again, to kind of harp back to the number one, I don't give a fuck what community you're in. Right. But if you're in refuge recovery, you're going to get a mentor. If you're in church, you're going to get whatever church you're in. You got to get. But ultimately, you need to have somebody that you can call up. And you can be like, dude, I'm having a shit day. Or more importantly, which people don't talk about enough, you got to call somebody and be like, dude, I'm having a great fucking right. day. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and that's the person you share that shit with. When I when people ask me to be their sponsor, I always say, listen, I got three disclaimers. And um, if you want me to be your sponsor, I got three disclaimers. The first one is I want you to call me every day. And I want you to call me every day, not just because um, we're going to have these long conversations. As a matter of fact, 99% of our conversations are going to look something like, hey, what's up, dude? Hey, what's up? I'm just checking in. All right, cool. You good? I'm good. All right, peace. That's 99% of our fucking conversations, right? Mm -hmm. But um, when we call somebody every day, we put in that, that, that we put in that FaceTime, right? We develop that relationship with somebody. And that's all this is, is a relationship. And you don't develop a relationship with somebody by just asking them to be your sponsor. And then six months later going, Oh, I got a sponsor. I don't fucking talk to him, but I got, that's not right. a fucking, it's not a relationship. You got to put the FaceTime in. Disclaimer number two is, um, there's going to be times where you're going to go three or four days a week without calling me. And that's Okay. Whenever you think about calling me, whenever you think about me, pick up the phone and fucking call right. me. Don't get in this in this shame mode where you're like, oh, God, he's going to make me feel like shit. I don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to make you feel like shit. Just pick up the phone and call me when you think about it. That's part of being in a relationship with somebody, right? And so anyway, so so we pillar number two, you got to develop this relationship. You have to have a point of accountability in your life. It's, it's, it's just part of it, Right. And then, um, and then, and then I'm going to kind of touch it. Pillar number three is huge on what you were just talking about. Right. Um, and if you want to kind of go back to what we was talking about with, um, with his journey through religion is uh, pillar number three is, is step work, but it's not just step work. It's, you have to align yourself with whatever community that you you're involved in. You practice these principles in all your affairs, right? It's not just step work, but step work's a big part of it. And so like, Look, man, every community that you're going to get involved in, every community that you're going to be a part of, it has like a set set of guidelines, right? And if you're not fucking living those guidelines, then why the fuck are you in that community? Like, Mm -hmm. it's pointless. Pick another fucking community. And that's why when you're talking about like, like I talk to these people who say they believe in this, but they don't. And then you're like, well, this is what this says you should you should do. This is your action steps. If you actually do believe in this, if this is your community and they're like, well, I'm not fucking doing that shit. Like then, then you need to pick another fucking community, right? right? You need to pick something that you're comfortable with. That's of you that you align with. And, and so, and so that's pillar number three, man, uh, practice the principles of your community and all your affairs, align yourself with them and not, don't just talk about it, be about it. And I'm going to say it again. Don't just talk about it, be about it, align yourself with that shit, be that person, right? So that's pillar number three. And then, uh, pillar number four, probably the most important fucking pillar that exists is in my opinion in my humble opinion is service be of service nice. all yeah. right 
And so, so let me just say like, like, um, in, in, in active addiction, y'all, I, I took and I took and I took and I took and I took and, and it was, I, everybody, everybody was a fucking mark and everybody in my life had eventually slowly, um, been, uh, deleted because they got tired of being used, manipulated and stolen from except mama. Mama's always there, right? In the bitter end. <laughs> and, um, but, but like I, I said in early recovery, I said, dude, I gotta stop. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta completely counter this selfish behavior. And the only way I know how to do it is to be of service as much as possible. And so, yep. so I came up with this plan, right, for me. And I said, I said, whenever anybody asks me to do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that question through four filters. Can I physically do it? Can I emotionally do it? Can I financially do it? Always remember, whenever somebody in recovery asks you to borrow money, you better fucking chalk that shit up to <laughs> yeah. you're giving it to them. You're yeah. not getting that shit. But and sometimes you get it back and that's a plus. But mentally, just put yourself in a place of I'm giving them. This is a donation, yep. Yep. right? And so, uh, again, can I emotionally do it, physically do it, financially do it? And then do I have the time and energy to do it? And, and like, if, if, if I'm asking, if they're asking that question, it's going through those four filters and all four filters are a yes, I just immediately say yes before I can say no, right? And so it's, it looks always, always looks something like this to me. Hey man, it's Sunday, your only day off. Can you help me move? Cause you have a truck. I'm like, yes, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I can fucking help you move. Fucking of course I can help you move. Right. Yeah. Love to. And, um, and so, so I just always try to say yes before I can say no on that shit. And then another part of that is like in recovery, man, we are, we are men and women of integrity, right? Uh, we do what we say and we say what we do. And, um, yep. and so like, if, if I'm going to say yes to something and I'm going to do it, then it, I'm damn well going to do it. You know what I mean? And, um, y'all, and I want to tell you this too, just super quick, uh, super quick. Um, uh, as, as far as like service goes, um, when, we, when I moved to Utah, I moved to Utah in uh, March of 2018 and, uh, my, my wife, uh, was, um, she was about like six months pregnant or some shit like that. Um, whenever we moved to Utah. And so she, uh, my wife ended up moving to Utah in June of 2018 because she's a teacher and, and did wait till school got out and all that shit. So, um, so she moves up here in June. Now I got three stepkids who I love, um, I love so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of them at the time was a 14 year old girl, teenage girl. Right now, I want you to think about this, this teenage girl, she's moving from Mississippi, coming up here, new friends, doesn't know anybody, new culture, new culture, oh, everything. Yeah. Right. And, and so we get here and, um, my wife's like six, seven months pregnant. So August, uh, August 8th, 2018, I was blessed with this beautiful, beautiful baby girl. First baby, first child I've ever had. And, um, and so we get this girl and her name is Riley. We get her in our arms, man. And we're just like loving all over and shit. And, um, and probably like 15, 20 minutes later, she just turns blue. Mm. Right. And, uh, and they come in they take her from us. And, um, and they put her on all these machines and shit like that. And, uh, and, and, and every day, you know, for, and I don't know if anybody's ever had a baby in the NICU, but it's one of the hardest things in the world to ever have to go through. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And, um, and so every day we're going up to to the hospital each day and they're like, you know what, today's probably going to be the day she's probably going to pass. You know what I mean? And she's just not, it's not working. Lungs aren't working. And, um, and so I was like, well, this is hard. It sucks. It's hard. And, um, and so she eventually she pulls through that shit, right? And she gets out of the NICU, and then we have these breathe, these big tanks all over the house and, and lines running through the house. And so, like, from that was August, right? And so the first, like, two months, it's just a shit show in our house, in our lives, everything, right? 
And, um, and then, uh, come like, uh, 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 uh November, uh, my, my 14 year old stepdaughter, Kayla's her name. She's got Crohn's disease. Mm. And my wife says, Kayla's not feeling good. Um, we're gonna take over the, the doctor's office. And, and then they're like, dude, they're, they're talking about, they need a life blighter to fucking children's primary. I'm like, what the fuck? She was eating fucking breakfast with me this wow. morning. What the fuck is happening? So they ended up having to take her up to children's primary. They didn't life blight her, but they, they ambulanced her up. And um, they had to get a bunch of her intestine cut out. And so, and so uh, that Thanksgiving, we, um, we spent, uh, we spent in, in Children's Primary. And, dude, let me tell you something. Ronald McDonald House is one of the greatest fucking charities that you can ever donate money to, second only to the Brighton Recovery Foundation that I'm the executive manager of. Um, but uh, and ninety eight percent goes to all recovering addicts, and, and we we assist individuals um, from detox to sober living and everything in between. But no bullshit. Uh, all jokes aside, Ronald McDonald House phenomenal organization, and they fed us Thanksgiving dinner, and it was just so amazing. And and you got to think like like and then and then and then my fourteen year old stepdaughter comes out, brand new school, teenage girl. She had a fucking colostomy bag mm, on her, right? Oh man! And um and that shit will leak, and oh my god, just headache after headache. So it's just, it's just real, real hard time in our house. Um, and, uh, and then my, uh, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law were at, were at our house and, uh, it's Christmas now at this point and they're out and my father-in-law's out in the front yard and this dude walks up and he's like, uh, like talking to my father-in-law, kind of like doing this shit. I'm kind of goosenecking through the window. And, um, and then my father-in-law comes inside and he's like, Hey, uh, this, they said this card was delivered to the wrong house. Y'all are the Osbournes and. I open it up and it's just like a get well soon car, real generic. And it said, um, $500 gift card from Walmart in it. And, uh, and I was like, there's no fucking way that this buy and call. And it's like 500 bucks. And, um, like, I, dude, it was this moment of like, we had been through so much mm. shit and on the other end, and dude, it's 500 bucks. It's fucking money. Right. But it was just the thought. It was the act of service that came with, um, with that, and, you know, it was one of those experiences that I'll never forget in a hundred years. I've still to this day, I've never figured out who did it. And, um, and I, uh, I want you to know that like today, today in recovery, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be that. I'm blessed to be that part of service in all my actions. I'm blessed to not only like be that, but receive it and know how it feels to be that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just such a beautiful gift, dude. Service is fucking huge. Practice random acts of kindness. The less people know you did it, the better. And um, and so anyway, so those are the four pillars of Charlie, bro. I Ooh. love it. Yeah, I love it, man. And I think it, I think it, it speaks right into, especially you know, you talked about that moment and service in general, and it speaks to you know that spiritual awakening because that's not anything I ever would have done in active addiction. You know, like and and the fact that. I am that kind of individual now today, or, you know, we are these individuals today. Like you said, people with integrity, mm -hmm. you know, like it, it speaks to the spiritual awakening that has occurred in me as a result of, you know, working a program, being involved in a community and aligning myself with the principles of that community. Like all the pillars of Charlie make complete sense to me. And I, and I think that what I like the most about what you said is that it's not specific to AA. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, these are things that anybody can apply to their lives and they will see a very positive result from it. You know, not just sober, 
you know, sobriety or sober thinking, but there is no way that if you do those four things that you're going to be unsuccessful. There's no fucking way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I really, I really appreciate that, man. That Pretty was, simple. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really excited is. to share that, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's dope. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you something else I say a lot too, is like when we're talking about recovery as a way of living, um, I dude, one of the number one things I always say is like, dude, staying sober and not drinking, not putting dope in my body today is baseline shit. Like that's the beginning. That's not yep. fucking recovery. Right. That's sobriety. And like recovery is all that shit that I do after yeah. I wake up sober and stay sober. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. That's perfect, man. That, that's great. Yeah. Sobriety and recovery. I love it, man. But I, I don't know a better place to, to segue into storm story. Like, I yeah, mean, well, I think that that's perfect. You know, what you said is, is yeah. exactly, you know, what, what in line with her, with her journey, you know, she talks about, um, how recovery is the way of life for her, like what her recovery is now. It's an education in the art of living, like she said, Yeah, right. and it's so much more. And she says this too, you know, it's so much more than being sober. It's mm-hmm. so much more than not drinking. It's so much more than not Absolutely. using, like, that's just the beginning. Right. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's perfect. Man. Yeah. So. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but I'm, I'm excited to share this. Thank you for, for yeah, everything man. up to this point, you know? And so with, without further ado, we will share this amazing story from Storm. Hi, my name is Stormy Wright. I am a uh, grateful recovered alcoholic and drug addict. Um, thank you so much to Willie and Cameron for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you for every uh, everybody for joining us. Um, yeah, I guess I'll just jump right into it. I am originally from Dallas, Texas, and I now live in Austin, Texas. Um, after spending a lot of years of my adult life in New York City, um, I basically had a really good, happy, healthy upbringing. Um, I had two very loving, supportive parents, um, great older siblings that really loved me and cared about me. Um, my mother was an absolute angel, still is. Um, she's my best friend. She's my rock. Um, she was always there for me, always supported me. Um, she, you know, she never stopped believing in me to this day, despite everything that happened in my life. Um, my father was a very, very strong um, disciplinarian, but also very, very supportive and loving. Um, he was really tough on me. Um, he loved me more than life itself, but he was he was very, very hard on me. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember certain things in my childhood, like, um, you know, I was really into sports. And if I, you know, came in second place in a, a tournament or something like that, he wouldn't congratulate me. He would say something like, oh, so you lost. Um, same thing in school. If I, if I got a B, he would, wouldn't say good job. He would ask me, where's the A and, um, you know, things like that didn't affect me negatively back then. Um, I'm not saying that they didn't perhaps affect me negatively later in life, uh, especially in active addiction. Um, you know, and I will definitely circle back to that later on in the story, but, um, you know, he knew what I was made of and he knew that when he said things like that to me, that he was pushing me. He wanted me to become something great. Um, he knew that, um, I had the potential to really, um, use my drive and my determination to achieve great things. Um, both of my parents were very successful businessmen, uh, men and women, but they, 
they were self-made. Um, you know, both of my parents grew up dirt poor and um, they, they made themselves into something great and they wanted to instill those qualities in me. And, um, you know, they were, they were well off and I was blessed to grow up the way that I did. And I only mention that because I think it's important to highlight the fact that, um, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate ever. It doesn't care if you're rich, doesn't care if you're poor, doesn't care the color of your skin, your social class, um, whether you're educated or not, it will take you by the throat. Um, it will take you 180 degrees from anything you ever wanted to be. And, um, you know, throughout my childhood and um, my entire life, um, I actually struggled with you know, despite the fact that I was smart and good at sports and I had a lot of friends, I really struggled with feeling at ease. I never really felt comfortable. I always, uh, you know, uh, had a worry about me and I always felt kind of fearful and I didn't really understand why. Later on in life, after, you know, years of therapy, I realized that it was because I had a, you know, really severe anxiety disorder and a social anxiety disorder. And um, I, I, you know, I never understood it, but it was always just kind of right there under the surface, just kind of, um, it would bubble over at times. Uh, it got worse and worse as I got older. And um, in high school, when I took my first drink, uh, I remember when I took that first drink, um, those feelings went away. And that was a really monumental experience for me because those feelings of dis-ease and discomfort were so pervasive that when they went away, I remember thinking, this is how I want to feel for the rest of my life. Um, so, you know, drinking was never something that was really common for me in high school. It was a once in a while thing. Um, so, you know, I didn't just jump into my addiction headfirst. Um, However, when I went to college, I got into the University of Texas at Austin and moved to Austin right after high school. And uh, in high school, that's when things really changed. Um, I hit the ground running, uh, that first taste of freedom. Um, I did not party like a quote unquote normal college kid. I partied like a member of Molly Crew. And um, that was pretty much my entire first year of college was, you know, balls to the wall partying all the time. Um, but I still managed to hold it together. I kept my shit together. I made good grades. I made it to class. But then, um, you know, at the end of the very end of my freshman year, I think it was right around the week of finals. Um, my life basically changed forever. I got a call from my mother and she told me that my father had had a massive heart attack and he was being taken in for a quadruple bypass and um, that I needed to come home because it was serious and um, he might not make it. So um, long story short there, he went into his bypass surgery uh, and was put into a medically induced coma after the surgery because um, his organs started to fail one by one. And after three weeks of being in a medically induced coma and having his organs fail, um, we had to say goodbye. And, um, you know, my father, I idolized him. Uh, he was everything to me. I, my, my, my life's mission was to make him proud of me and to, you know, to be something, to make myself great, to make him proud. And, um, 
so the only way I can describe what happened to me after he died, after, you know, we had to say goodbye after his funeral was, I just lost hope. Um, and to lose hope at the age of 18 years old is a really, really awful thing. Um, so the next four years of college were basically, uh, my life's mission, which used to be to achieve and to, you know, strive for greatness and to make him proud of me and to make myself into something wonderful. My life's mission became to just alleviate pain and anguish and agony, um, by any cost. And, um, I did that by drinking and soon I discovered, um, drugs. Um, I had a, a neighbor in my dorm who was a drug dealer. So of course I had to date him. And um, I got into ecstasy and cocaine. And soon after that, I got completely addicted on prescription opioids, which became the next uh, 15 years of my life from there. Um, no idea how I did it, but I managed to graduate college <laughs> after four years of drinking every day, taking pills every day, and you know, doing cocaine just to stay awake enough to get through my coursework, but I managed to graduate with a degree in communications. Um, and I was so soulless and, um, miserable. Um, you know, at this point I kind of felt like my heart pumped dust. Um, so I thought, okay, I have to escape whatever this is, this, this agony, this feeling of hopelessness. I have to escape it. Um, I got to leave. I got to go somewhere else. So I decided to move to New York city. And, um, so I did I moved to New York city and, um, that's not a good place for a, um, somebody who is, you know, completely in active addiction, doesn't know it, doesn't, you know, needs help, needs to find a way out, needs to, you know, find a solution to her problem, which is herself and just doesn't know it. So, um, I, certainly found my drive and my ambition back when I moved to New York. Um, I started, you know, working my way up the corporate ladder in the field of communications in different industries from the art world, the music industry, and the alcohol industry. Um, music and alcohol, those two industries, again, not good choices for someone with the substance use issues that I had because those industries revolve around um, you know, parties, promotional events, um, you know, drinking, using. Um, so during that time, um, things spiraled out of control and I, my ambition turned ugly. I would trample over anyone and everyone to get to the top of the food chain. And it was all about greed. It was all about, it was all for show. Because looking back, I realized I had to have everything on the outside look pretty because on the inside, I felt so awful. I had to cover up for the fact that I felt like a piece of human garbage with designer clothes and the apartment off Central Park West and the high rise office and, you know, the money in the bank and the fancy bottle of wine and this fancy restaurant and all of these superficial things to cover up for the fact that I had, my soul was dying. And, um, you know, everybody back home was saying, oh, she's really somebody and she's doing so well and she's climbing the corporate ladder. Um, but it doesn't matter how much you have on the outside. Um, 
it doesn't matter, you know, how fancy your apartment is when you go home every single night scribbling in your journal about how you want to kill yourself. Um, you know, when you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is reach for the half empty bottle of whiskey and, you know, you can't make it to the office without doing a line of coke. And, you know, you're popping pills all day, every day, just to achieve homeostasis. So, you know, after years and years of being up in New York and just doing this every single day, I was so, so much more broken than when I left Austin, I decided to run away again, decided to run away from my problems again, hightail it back to Austin because it has to be the location. The location must be the problem. It can't be me, right? Um, so I go back to Austin and, you know, shockingly, uh, things don't get better because the problem is me. The problem always has been me. And little do I know that uh, when I get back to Austin, that rock bottom is waiting right around the corner for me. Um, I moved back to Austin in 2012 and about um, nine months after I moved back to Austin, October 26, 2013, I went to a party with my older sister at some of her friend's house. And um, I had been drinking all day and I had acquired enough Oxycontin and benzos to last me the entire weekend. I was ready to go. This was a Friday night, I believe. And so I show up at this party. I'm completely annihilated already, but I've got my pills. I've got my bottle of gin and, um, you know, drink the bottle of gin. And I guess I was uncomfortable and, you know, decided I didn't want to be there. So I took all the pills, all the pills I had for the whole weekend. I just decided to take them all that night. Um, Hold the good old Irish goodbye, didn't tell anybody I was leaving, got in my car and decided to go home. I wanted to be alone. Um, so I'm driving down the dark highway and I start falling out. Um, you know, I've taken enough pills to kill a small elephant and drank an entire bottle of gin on top of everything I drank throughout the day. And as I'm driving, um, a car pulls onto the highway from a parking lot of a strip mall that's off to the side of the highway. And they pull out in front of me as I'm falling out, blacking out, speeding down the highway at 85 miles an hour. And I crash into them full speed. And we go soaring down the road, both of us headfirst into a ditch. And one of the passengers in the other car was killed and another passenger in the car broke their back. And it never fails, <laughs> no matter how many times I tell this story, um, it takes my breath away when I say those words out loud. Um, and I've told this story so many times to so many people in so many different settings, but it never fails to just take my breath away to say those words out loud. Um, you know, and it's been almost eight years since this happened and um, the weight of it is still crushing. Uh, it's still absolutely crushing. Um, so I woke up in a hospital bed the next morning with a 10 inch hole in my stomach um, and found out I had killed someone. 
and was also told that I had to be rushed into life-saving emergency surgery because I had severed my intestines in several places. Um, they had to remove all of the severed parts of my intestines and resection them back together. So um, I lost about two and a half feet of my digestive tract. And when you have a surgery like that, you can't close, you, they can't close you back up. There's a risk of infection and going septic and dying from the infection. So they have to leave you open and put a tube in you and let you slowly close back up naturally, which is a very long and very painful process. On top of that, um, I couldn't exactly detox from opioids because after an operation like that, you have to be on morphine. So I was in the hospital for weeks on morphine, then stepped me down to Dilaudid. Then after I was discharged from the hospital after three weeks, um, they gave me you know, a little 10-day supply of Norco and then stepped me down to Tramadol. And for all my opioid addicts out there, I think you all know that taking Tramadol is about like taking extra strength Tylenol. Um, so the withdrawals kick in. Um, on top of that, you know, let's not forget, um, I'm now staring down a 20 year prison sentence. Um, so the weight of claiming a life, the weight of severely injuring another human being who's now having to undergo surgery just so he can walk again. Um, the fear of going to prison for 20 years when I have a perfectly clean record and I've never done anything wrong in my life. Um, and um, you know, now I'm now I'm withdrawing. So um, that's enough for me. I'm done. I'm done now. Um, you know, I, I can't I can't do I can't do this anymore. I have the desperation of a drowning man, and um, so I decide, regardless of the fact that I can barely walk and I have a tube coming out of my stomach and an open wound. Um, I'm dragging my, um, I'm dragging my ass to a meeting. So broken and ashamed and hating my own guts, um, hair drenched in sweat from withdrawals. And, you know, with a tube coming out of me, I walk into my first AA meeting. I was out of excuses. I was out of chances. Um, so I go in there and I'm sitting on my hands with withdrawals and, uh, I was terribly afraid and I was really ready to give the whole thing, you know, just a middle finger. I was sitting in the back waiting for someone to judge me or look at me wrong or, you know, anything. I, I didn't want to be there, but I just, I was too afraid to not be there. Um, you know, but I didn't get any of that. I didn't get any of that. What I got was um, authentic connection from a room full of strangers um, and I sat there and I listened to all of these people in these rooms tell their stories and they told them with such, such joy and such gratitude. And I heard them laughing. Um, I mean, they were saying some, some crazy stuff too. I mean, their stories, some of their stories put mine, would put mine to shame and they were laughing and they were nodding and smiling. And I like, what are these people laughing about I mean this is insane and they were saying things out loud that I was ashamed to even think and looking back on it now I realized that you know there's such they're they're joyful and they're laughing because they understand 
on a fundamental level in their soul that they're not alone. And, you know, I felt that I felt that connection from this strange, crazy motley crew of people I had never met that I hadn't felt a connection like that, even from my family and friends. And not that my family and friends didn't love me, but they didn't understand what I was going through to this level. And, you know, sitting there thinking, haven't we all effectively ruined our lives? Why are these people so happy? But now I, now I understand. You know, that's, uh, that connectedness was the first time since I had started drinking and using that I had actually had anything close to a spiritual experience. And that's what recovery is for me. It's, it's a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual program first and foremost, you know, but it's also a program of action. And I believe that those two qualities are forever linked. Um, you know, what I've learned about what I've learned about the spiritual realm and about spirituality and recovery is that it has so little to do with self and it has so little to do with what I believe and what I think and what I expect and what I understand. It has everything to do with what I do and the actions that I take. And as long as I do take these actions and as long as I do take strides to make myself better every single day, I'm going to feel these shifts within me. I'm going to feel these changes within me. I'm not going to see any changes in the outside world. Life's going to keep on being life. And that's not what it's about. What it's about is regardless of what happens in life, I'm going to be able to find and maintain that inner peace and that light and that wellness, despite any challenges, despite any pain. Um, and that's what's so beautiful. You know, if I can maintain a peace and a soundness and a oneness and a gratitude without having to turn to alcohol and drugs, you know, for this alcoholic addict, that's nothing short of miraculous. Um, you know, and I always tell newcomers that I work with, um, you know, recovery has so little to do with abstaining from drugs and alcohol at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's really what it is, is an education in the art of living. And, um, you know, these spiritual principles we live by have given me things that I never, ever had before. And I never thought were possible to have. When people said that they had things like this, I thought they were full of shit. I just thought they were lying. Um, but now I have them and I understand that they're real and the drugs and the alcohol were just synthetic versions of those things. You know, when I was out there drinking and using, I, I never had these things. Universal oneness, equanimity, the desire and the ability to be of service, um, you know, I never would have those things without the program of recovery. And um, I don't have to run anymore. I don't have to fight anymore. I can just be. Um, so yeah. currently I work at Any Length Retreat, which is a premier alcohol and drug rehabilitation center in Austin, Texas. And you can um, follow me or DM me at Any Length Retreat on Instagram. Um, reach out to me anytime. Well, we're glad you're just being awesome, sharing your story with us. Thank you for that. Dude, Storm, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Great.
you know, and, uh, and, and I'll say, you know, I, Oof. uh, there was a lot that she wasn't able to get into. Um, cause 20 minutes, it goes by so fast. Like when you're in the midst of telling a story and you get on a roll and then you feel like you have to wrap it up. But, um, you know, one thing I'll let everybody know is as far as prison time, she, she didn't go to jail. Um, she had, uh, 18 months house arrest and, uh, she had an ankle monitor and then she was on probation for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So she definitely said she felt some gratitude towards that. Um, and she said that the, the, um, individual who was killed was just a young girl from, um, Harvard who was not a partier. Um, and, and she said that, you know, her way to honor that person is by her sharing her story. Yeah. And and I couldn't agree more, you know, that's definitely, um, a great way to honor that individual. Yeah. Be tough, man. And, you know, we've, we've said it so many times, like you could have been any fucking one of us at at any time. Yeah. You know, that's a yet out there, you know, um, it, it could still happen. Uh, if you fall short of, of any of those four pillars that seem to be definitely a program of recovery on a daily basis, you know? So, I mean, Charlie, what'd you think? What'd That's you... powerful, dude. Yeah. Powerful. There's a lot of shit. Um, man, you know, I, guy, I haven't, I haven't thought about this shit in so long, but, uh, when I first, you, you know, what's really cool is when she took down, she took me down that road of like, this is what my first meeting was like. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like sitting there and I'm there and I'm remembering that shit, that first meeting when you're just all fucked up and you don't know what's up and what's down and all that. And, um, and I was like there for me and I mean, I, I will never forget. I was in this like podong town in Mississippi and well, it wasn't my first meeting, but it like in this, this go around this, uh, you know, this time of sobriety, this, this yeah, yeah. yeah, it was that first meeting and I was, um, I was withdrawing so hard from everything and everybody in the meeting, they were looking at me and they're like, dude, are you all right, man? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And, um, uh, and this, this dude, his name is Dallas and, uh, he was picking up 10 years on the night that I was picking up uh, 24 hours. I'll never forget this shit. And, uh, and everybody, you know, he's like a big prominent person in the meeting. So everybody's talking like, how'd you do it? And you know, talking about how great Dallas is and all that shit. And, um, and I, I'm just trying to keep my fucking eyes <laughs> yeah, straight. Yep, yep. And, uh, he said, uh, he, he was, he did, when he was telling his story, he said, he said, you know, um, his, his parents owned the pharmacy and in, oh, in the man. town. And so he grew up with keys to the pharmacy and, um, and we just raid it all the time. Oh, and so I was just like, damn, that's fucking crazy. And so then he's talking, he's talking, he's like, and so for so many years, um, he was just so lost in addiction and then he got sober. And then he said it was about nine months into his sobriety and he was at, at uh, this Christmas function with his family and, um, and somebody said something funny. And he said he started laughing and it was that laugh from like the pit of your soul kind of laughing, you know, and he said he couldn't stop laughing and he started crying. He was like, it wasn't even that funny. But um, but but he he had not laughed. And I'll never forget. He was like, I had not laughed in over a decade. Oh, right? wow. And I'll never forget that because I'm sitting there on my first meeting and I'm thinking, dude, I haven't fucking laughed in 10 years either, bro. I want to fucking laugh till I cry. Huh. You know, I love you got that. Uh, there's a there's a if, if you ever get to come over to Cameron's house, there's a there's a picture out in his living room. And it's like it ends. There's a whole bunch of shit. that's like bullshit to like live every single day. And at the end, it says uh, it says 
laugh as much as possible and love a lot. And I probably butchered it, but, but I, I love, I love, I love that, man. I, I want to love as much as I can. And I want to laugh every fucking day because this, this world is so, um, it's so short. This time here is so short and I just want to fill it with as much laughter. But anyway, that's what resonated with me was, yeah. was her talking about how people came into the rooms and, and there was like, there was happiness and, and, and she was like, hey, how could these people be happy? They fucked up their whole lives yeah. with drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and they're right? laughing. And they're laughing and, yeah. about it, right? And, anyway, that's what stuck I, with me. I feel like I, I, I had that experience too. Like I didn't, I didn't get it. Like, what do you mean? Like, how could you, how could you, how are, how are you guys having yeah. fun? You're not drinking. Like right. I, I couldn't imagine like. Apparently your problems yeah, aren't as bad like, as mine. Like right. not drinking, <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, her story was great. She's just, she was just a great person yeah. to talk to, and, yeah. and and you know, like like so many of us, we hear the same thing, right? Like, she she talked about how you know she grew up well off, and about how the disease doesn't discriminate, and and it doesn't matter like what sort of upbringing you have. She had what we hear so commonly is this general unease within herself. Yeah. You know, that she talked about, you know, later being diagnosed with anxiety and a social disorder, but she had that general unease and we've heard it countless times where it's like, you take that first drink and Charlie, we talked about it earlier. Mm-hmm. You take that first drink and it's just boom, all of a sudden I'm that, live here forever. This mm-hmm. is, this is it. This is the solution. I don't got to feel uncomfortable anymore, yeah. you know? And then, you know, and then she was just off, you yeah. know? And then, you know, you go through life and like, like she was checking all the boxes, you know, I got the, I got the success. I got the apartment, you know, uh, everything on the outside was looking great. Uh, according to all, you know, standards of living, you yeah. know, like this is, this is everything supposed to look like this. And I still want to kill myself. Yeah. Like fucking it. I'm not fulfilled. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and move into the position where we're trying to, to maintain that buzz to the point where we don't have to fill our lives, which I can absolutely relate to, you know, and, and we were talking before the show too, you know, how many times did we plan the weekend accordingly? Right. Fucking just, it still wasn't enough. Yeah. No, I have everything I need for the weekend. And then you wake up Saturday and go, shit, what happened to yeah. all that stuff I had for the weekend? Friday night at 6 yeah. p.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in, I mean, in this instance, we saw like the drastic consequences that came from, from that. And, and, uh, and we also are able to see what, what Storm has been able to do with that story. Like we said, she, she works at any links re- retreat. She's highly involved. So we with, had Robert on. Yeah, we had Robert on and, and he was a great guest and, um, and she's highly involved in, in service work. She's, uh, she's got a fiance. She's built a whole new life, you know, and it, and it's amazing to see, like I, I, she, she talked about, you know, how she lost her father and all she ever really wanted was to make her dad proud and, and kind of that relationship. And, and I dare say that, you know, her dad, would look at how she is now and what's happening and what she's able to do with her story and her journey. And I dare say that he would be proud. Yeah. And I I think passion and moving towards it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I thank you so much. My heart goes out to her. My heart goes out to the, to the families, everyone that's involved in this situation. And, and, you know, we don't, uh, we don't get out of alcoholism and drug addiction alone. Every, everyone and everywhere we go, 
is affected by what we do and who we are in the disease. And this is, this is an extreme example. It's, it's a common example, but it, uh, you know, it's, it's happened to a lot of people. Um, you know, all we're, all we're doing is partying, you know, we're just, we're not hurting anybody but ourselves. And then, uh, one fateful night changes everything for everybody involved. And, and the cost of the disease is much higher than a lot of us can imagine. And so, the importance of sobriety and the importance of recovery is paramount mm-hmm. for everyone in our lives, you know, because all those things are still out there waiting, you know, uh, there's yeah. no guarantee that that won't continue to happen in your life. If you relapse, if you choose to go back out, you could have one drink and we've heard stories of that, uh, you know, one relapse led to the death the individual or someone else because of that relapse. Like mm-hmm. it's a serious, serious fucking condition that we have and, and lives are on the line everywhere that we go. So to not be forgotten. So, you yeah. know, thanks for, thanks for putting that out there storm. Absolutely. Yeah. Heavy, heavy, shit. super heavy. And what was that word she used? E- e- equi- equanimity equanimity the calmness or peace of mind yeah (laughs) we had to google it let's be honest (laughs) yeah Um, i knew what they said yeah yeah (laughs) you're just googling it for our sake (laughs) but um but you know and and that's the thing you know like i i really appreciate her sharing that because that's what we get like in recovery and 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 again she talked about how you know being sober is just that's the that's the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, like we get so much more from recovery. We yeah. get that, that calmness, we get that, you know, spiritual oneness and, and, and we get all the beautiful gifts that come with, um, being on this side of the table, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, it was, I hope that people got a lot from that. I know I did. And, and, uh, and you know, she's yep. a great person to connect with. True. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. What's up, brother? Thanks for coming out, bro. Yeah. Thank you Man, so much. Pleasure. I'm so grateful you guys invited yeah, me. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. This was fun. So we'll have to do it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. We're gonna we're gonna say goodbye. You wanna say goodbye first? Hey, thank y'all so much for listening to everything that uh, I have to say. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of this. Um, that's it, man. Thank y'all. Yeah, Charlie, thank you. Cameron. Yeah, remember everybody, you are worth the work. Ooh, Damn right. See you on the other side. <laughs> Boom. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.